0: Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this family. Please speak to us as we get into your word. Show us who you are and who you want us to be. In your son's name, amen.
1: Amen. Oh, good morning. Uh, excited about speaking with you, uh, and hopefully it'll be a it'll be a two-way exchange here. Uh, when when Eric uh, he asked me uh, and a cadre of people to to teach it was originally not Deuteronomy, and. Uh, not that I was. What did we miss? It well, <laughs> Leviticus. No, uh, <laughs> so many people wanted to teach it that he thought let's just change books. Uh, no, it was it was originally Judges. Not that I felt any uh, more comfortable with with uh, Judges than I did Deuteronomy. Uh, but you know, I, I, when I was growing up, you know, you get asked to do something in church, you you, you don't say no. You know, you you you. Follow uh, you follow your uh, requests uh, and obliged requests turned out to be Deuteronomy, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I don't feel like I am have a history of being particularly uh, well versed on on Deuteronomy, but you start studying this stuff, and uh, for me, it reminded me of my first exposure to, to these stories which was children's Bible hour uh, where I grew up in uh, rural North Alabama children's Bible hour on uh, Sunday nights I don't know if anybody you know it, it, does that resonate with anybody
0: Sunday night hour was not scriptural in our
1: well it was a little edgy to to pull the uh... to pull the five through eleven-year-olds out of the worship uh, assembly uh, even on sunday night was a little edgy but it was done Uh, they don't do it anymore just way too edgy uh... but that that was my recollection of uh, first being exposed to these uh, to these stories particularly to me particularly starting with abraham and i'm sure we discussed uh you know noah and and the the predecessors to abraham but from from abraham on down the lineage uh that's that's my recollection and they were they were very formative uh to me uh i don't what i don't recall is uh Getting in the—I mean, I remember the Abraham, I remember the Moses, I remember the uh, going toward the Promised Land, the forty years. I remember all that, uh, but but beyond that, when you get into after the death of Moses, I feel like I don't remember that well. But those are things I remember well, and I remember the more from children's Bible hour than I do from from. Uh, storytelling from my parents I was the second child so you know the you know the first child gets all the stories the second child just sent her to bed right you know just no time for stories uh, so I'll do a quick recap from last week and kind of where we're going in this uh, there is a whole cadre of teachers uh, I think this is the only this is the only Sunday I've gotten unless something changes but there are so many I can't name them. But I see about three of them to my left here. Uh, so uh, Jim, Brian, and Alan, uh, Paul is in there, and there are others too that may be in the room that I'm just overlooking or not remembering. Just one from each tribe. Uh, what, that's a nice theme. I wondered that was the hidden. That was the hidden thing.
2: It's the test teacher program.
1: Right, yeah, test teacher. Right. Uh, uh, but fortunately, I think for the you know Eric is the coordinator, so you know he he doesn't really count. He's the he's the the head teacher. I think uh, for the rest of us, though, I'll be setting the bar really low. So <laughs> I don't think uh, any of you uh, will have big shoes to fill uh, with respect to me. Uh, a little bit of recap: uh, Deuteronomy being the uh, fifth book of Torah. Uh, it is essentially. Uh, uh, a, a recounting uh, to some degree via three lectures from uh, Moses uh, of, of kind of what's happened up to that point. We've got some reference materials that uh, we're using uh, maybe I shouldn't speak for the rest of, of the presenters you're going to hear uh, but the one book that I would frame as popularly written that I think is very good if you want to dive into this beyond the script. If you want to have some ancillary materials beyond uh, the the actual text of Deuteronomy, uh, Living as the Community of God by Philip Camp is the one that I would frame as most popularly written which, which is another way of saying uh, easy for, you know, uh, people of, of lower cognitive ability, like myself, uh, can really read and absorb really well. So this is a really well-done book. I would highly recommend it. I haven't read the whole thing, of course, uh, but what I did read in preparation for this class, and uh, with respect to last week, I thought was very, very well done. So this is uh, confident in print, right? Eric, can go to the bookstore, yes, yes. or get online and, and buy this one. Uh, the other ancillary material that we're using, uh, is Patrick Miller's uh, commentary on Deuteronomy. This is, a, this is a traditional commentary, but it's very well uh, written, I thought. And so if you wanna dive, this is out of print. So you, you wanna get a chance on this, you're gonna have to either go to the library or, or get a used one. Uh, but I thought it was particularly good. So I say that to say this. Any really insightful things that you happen to hear during this class uh, this morning, I'm going to preemptively attribute to one of these authors. So this is, this is me attributing uh, especially insightful ideas to uh, the interpretation of, of these two authors. I'm going to lay those over here and hopefully not forget them. Uh, so what does what is the... Uh, what is the essence of Deuteronomy? Uh, we discussed this briefly last week, uh, emphasizing the relationship of God to His people, uh, emphasizing uh, the nature of the community of God's people. This whole notion of, of community. Uh, Moses in the first chapter addresses the uh, leadership and judicial structure that he's that that, that through God he's. Uh, instituting, uh, setting about to establish. Uh, we also read a little bit about the, uh, the spies that the uh, Israelites had sent ahead to scope out what was, what was ahead. And we talked about the whole notion that uh, the implication is that there was some lack of faith on their part uh, due to their perception that the, the, the unknown people that, that were up there ahead uh, were larger, they, they were presumably physically larger, possibly physically much larger, presumably stronger, and uh, there was a lack of faith on their part about, about their ability to do what God had already said they were equipped to do. Uh, so even though God said it, uh, you go do this, I'm, I'm making this uh, way for you to, to accomplish this, They still lacked faith, and so the Lord actually comes back and says, you know, forget it, don't fight after all, and if you do, you'll get defeated. That's essentially the upshot of of what happened. Uh, And in fact, uh, the Lord also says that a whole generation is going to pass before their, their successors will see the promised land, Caleb and Joshua being the exceptions there, even Moses.
0: That point right there really is the occasion for Moses retelling the law. Is that you've had everybody twenty years of age and older yeah. to die. Yeah, right. So you've got now that you can have people in their forties and fifties, but he's, he's taking this as kind of a farewell occasion to tell them everything that their predecessors heard and failed.
1: Yeah, but because you had what we call that in the uh, uh, the quasi corporate world that I'm part of, institutional memory. There there was some loss there, presumably. Yeah. Every generation has to hear it over and over. Yeah, right. Great point. So, as uh, chapter, I'm going to have to pull this closer because I'm going to have to take take sips occasionally. As chapter two opens, uh, what we find is. the Lord essentially telling them to, to move onward. Okay, this, this generation that Hilton just described is winding down and it's time to, to move onward. So the, the preceding message then that we get uh, prior to chapters two and three, which we're going to focus on today, uh, is something along these lines, in my opinion. Uh, the, the, the people of God uh, don't allow fear in theory not that they didn't but the people of god shouldn't allow fear to deter them from following god's plan i think we i think we can take that away from from what we've seen so far Uh, faith has to overcome fear i think that's a predominant theme uh, in chapter one through the remainder of the book as well Uh, we see that theme repeated throughout history so this is not this is not something that i would consider Thing that's unique to this particular story. Uh, we'll see that played out in, in other places in the Old Testament and certainly uh, through the New Testament as well. Uh, the people of God are called to a way of life that conforms to faith and righteousness, and when that faith uh, wavers or that faith uh, relapses, then adverse things would, would tend to follow from that, I'm speaking in very broad generalities here. Uh, and so we see this overriding theme of, of, of trusting God, regardless of what distractions might, uh, might come our way. It, my opinion, following our heart over our head. Okay, the whole notion of, of the spies. That was, a, that was a brain thing, not so much a heart thing, in my opinion. Uh, and, but that's not easy to do. And so I think we see that throughout human history. Following the heart over the head uh, is not an easy thing particularly now when we're looking for specific answers. We want specific pathways. We want to know what's ahead of us. We want it all laid out bullet by bullet. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what we're going to do. And in many ways, that is uh, defeating of faith because uncertainty uh, or lack of certainty, maybe I should frame it better, uh, is, is intertwined with the whole essence of faith. Uh, so let's launch into chapter 2. Two. I hope you read, if, if you haven't read Deuteronomy 2 and 3, uh, it, it's a lot of place names, a lot of person names that are not particularly easy to pronounce. Uh, but I would encourage you to, uh, the parts that we don't necessarily read in the context of, of this class session, uh, maybe you could skim through it. We won't read everything word for word. But I do want to read, uh, beginning in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. So, you've got the setup so far. Okay. Then we turned back and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea as the Lord had directed me. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Okay, so this is, you know, you've wandered enough. We've, we've, uh, hit the pause button, so to speak, and and now let's, let's turn north. Give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. This is the NIV, by the way. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on, I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through the vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. Chapter 2, this portion of it anyways, is essentially an account of the journey uh, through five, and I wanted to say enemy territories, but enemies probably not a very good word. And then I thought, because it's militaristic and as we see here, as we're going to see, they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't fight the Esau people, they didn't fight the uh, uh, Moabites, they didn't fight the uh, Ammonites. So opposition maybe is a slightly better word there to describe the people, but I'm calling them other other peoples, okay? Not, not them. Uh, but it, this is all quite complicated, I think, because these, these first three groups, the Esau people, the Edom, these are the Edomites, by the way. It talks about the people, the Esau people, these are the Edomites. Uh, these are non-provocation peoples uh, that I'm referring to here the people that they're supposed to just pass by and not engage in in battle with uh... it's complicated and fascinating i think because these are referred to uh... as their brothers Okay, the, the, the edomites are their brothers uh... fascinating because they're kind of cut from the same cloth so to speak going back to the time of abraham and we also actually see that that God gave land, Edom, Moab, Ammon, to the descendants of Esau. Okay, and the same uh, scenario on down into chapter two plays out uh, with the Moabites and the Ammonites, who were descended from who? <laughs> Lot. They were descended from Lot. Here again, cut from the same cloth. That's probably not a good expression. Uh, regarding Edom there's some discrepancy between this account and the account in numbers uh, here Edom is, is characterized as being afraid in numbers uh, which I haven't looked at closely but they're characterized as being uh, hostile and threatening you know we can we can it's a very fascinating thought exercise as to whether or not they felt threatened or, or not but the point here the overriding point here is that God had gifted a possession of land to other people, not just, not just the Israelites. Uh, and so the whole notion of, of the Lord gifting land, gifting is maybe not a bit, not the best word, but is not a phenomenon exclusive to Israel. Okay, there there was this land set aside for these others uh, who were distinct from uh, the Israelites. Uh, it's also a turning point, I think, because uh, the the writer of Deuteronomy, once again describing the notion that a generation had to die off before uh, God would continue to, to pave their way to their destination and, and begin giving enemies over to uh, Begin uh, uh, giving enemies over. That's the best way I know to, to frame it. Look at verse 14, chapter 2. 38 years passed from the time we left uh, Kadesh Barney until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, the entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Uh, this I find fascinating because in, in verse 14, No, verse 15. The Lord's hand was against them until they completely eliminated them. That word, uh, translated in Hebrew, is hamam. I may not have pronounced that, translated that precisely, but hamam. It means eliminated, not so, not so great a word. Put in commotion, okay, is a better translation. Discomfit. I call it pandemonium, okay. Uh, the fascinating thing here and I don't know if I want to jump over to Joshua or not. Joshua uh, has uh, an account of a, of a battle between Israelites and others uh, when the, the Gibeonites and the Israelites had made an alliance and then there were uh, the peoples that they were fighting. This word is typically described, uh, typically used to describe an enemy encounter. But here we've got God using that word. Referring to his own people. Uh, Meaning that that he was against them until he had completely eliminated... Talking about the generation that Hilton was talking about earlier. Uh, He's eliminated his own people through that generation. And that's uh, terminology typically used for enemies rather than than God's own people. So that gets us up to verse uh, 15. Thoughts so far? Feedback. Reactions.
0: that's the same as when he says he's going to send the hornet
1: ahead. Is that the same confusion? I'd, I'm not sure. You know what? Oh, in which part are you referring to? There's a
0: couple of spots like in Joshua and in here, where there's like this mysterious thing where God says I'll send the hornet ahead of you. Nobody really quite can say what that is but it's like related to either confusion or maybe actual hornets. Yeah. But I was wondering
1: if that was the same word. Uh, not not sure. It's an interesting question. Other thoughts?
0: Let me just a, a, a quick question here. This is, uh, I'm looking at this version that never stood out to me before, where he says you were to pay them in silver. For the food that you eat. How many, how many people are we talking about? Two million. How many? Two, Two three million. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it's silver? <laughs> people are wandering through the wilderness. They had nothing. They borrowed it from the Egyptians. I think the Egyptians paid them Brought it with them. They paid them to leave. Well, they took, yeah, they had treasure. When they finally said, get out of here, they took stuff with them. They it said they uh, They were told to go borrow all the silver. And that then Genesis says that that was payment for their Years are slogan. Uh, where is that? It's in, in, in Genesis. I haven't, I haven't read it. It's 49 that. chapters. <laughs> and <there's something> <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering where you would sit the far yeah. where a million or two. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and,
1: and, and it depends on how much it costs, you know I mean? Depends on what the in, and inflation and rate and was. It is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> there were, yeah. When they numbered them, there were 603,350 men aged 20 and above <laughs> right. fighting men. So right. You got to take like, women, children. <laughs> got to be a couple of million, at least. That's, that's what I was thinking. A big
0: group. I've got the verse for that. It's Exodus eleven, eleven. I'm sorry, eleven, three. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded. And that's where they talk about that they gave them. Sure. I'm sorry, verse two, tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. <clears throat> and I had underlined verse three, and the, verse three says, the Lord made them favorable. Enough, and Jimmy, that's where they, they got it. Gold for later, so we can build a cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: Clearly, yeah. And,
2: and, and it, and it's, it's not like the they were spending 40 years off stuck in a corner somewhere. I mean, when we say yeah. wilderness, so aren't, aren't they just kind they're, they're, they're wandering around and they're on the move but it's not like they're out in the middle of the Sahara with nobody around they're interacting and conducting businesses I mean in 40 years you, know, you can you can do a lot of business and make a lot of money in yeah. 40 years yeah. but the, 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 there, there's two things here that are fascinating to me and one of them is the size of the group moving through a relatively small area yeah. for two or three million people. I mean, you think you know, we got about 150,000 extra, uh, 150, extra people in this area this weekend, and think about what that looks like when you're trying to get somewhere and trying to do something, and the, the roads are clogged from Murphurs. It's like going to Bomber. Yeah, well, but, but it's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. think about that. From Trying from, to get off at that exit. Yeah. From, from Manchester all the way into North Nashville, everything's full. Everything's packed up. And right. And you can't get
1: in. Because there were clearly transportation routes. Right. I mean, you know, it's not just like, you know, the whole world is a road.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the, But the other thing, we, I think what, we've got three sections here where the Lord is saying... Go through this place, leave these people alone, I gave them this land. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've never really thought about compete, competing sets of God's people. Yeah. And I, I can't help but wonder if maybe we have this story because this is the one that took. And I always think about I always think about them as being the ones that were going it was sort of predestined that this yeah. was going to work. Through this line, through this particular line, all the way. Yeah. I and mean, we see later on, we see the Edomites get wiped out. Uh, I suspect that we see some of these other groups get wiped out, and maybe, maybe we have the story we have because these are the ones that paid enough attention to see it through.
1: Yeah, you do wonder about that. You, you know, what, what, what I want to do is I want to see I want to see those people's Deuteronomy account. Yeah, you know? exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. But no, yeah, what we, we was, don't what, have that. What was, God,
2: what was God telling the people of Esau? Because yeah. clearly he made a promise like he made to the Israelites that I'm going to give you this land and this is going to be your land and I've got plans for you here.
1: And, and which of their descendants was the Moses? Yeah. for them? Or
0: was supposed to be the Moses. Yes, yeah. yeah. There's another possibility on why the people that wrote that part down actually wrote it down. Because later, on after... Syria and Babylon do what they do, they have all sorts of curses for the, their relatives of, of Moabite descent and even like descent because they didn't back them up when that was happening. So there, there is a possibility, it's not for sure, but they kind of put this in there so that later on, during their impracticatory songs and stuff, they're, set, they're like, hey, we treated them well, and then they betrayed us. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Uh, let's move on. Uh, on to chapter two. Uh, No, we're in chapter 2. On to verse 24 of chapter 2. And now, how to say, if you've read this at all uh, in your life and you remember it, uh, it's not pretty. And so... uh, When I signed up for this uh, week, Eric, I I was just signing up for a blank space and uh, not really looking close. Of course, I was about the last one to sign up, too.
3: We saved it for you. All the blanks,
1: most all the blanks were full, and uh, so I just popped my name in there, and then it turns out to be Deuteronomy uh, 2 and 3, which is problematic for the latter half of chapter 2 and the early half of chapter 3. So let's read this together, uh, and then we'll get some... uh, We'll have some discussion. Verse 24. After we've, we've moved through the Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites territory, we've done what we're supposed to do. There's been no fighting. There are other, quote-unquote, other people of some kind, descendants uh, of Abraham as well. But nonetheless, uh, there was no warfare like we're about to see. Verse 24. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. Skip down to 31. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jehaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army. At that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. So before we get into the the hard part. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what we see here at a more general level. Uh, The illumination, in my opinion, we see the illumination of divine control of events. Uh, Sihon's heart was hardened. The NIV uh, says that God made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate. Uh, Obstinate also translated difficult. He was... Maybe not a a good word there, but but he was obstinate uh, is the best word there, obviously, uh, to use. We might ask this question before we get to the heart of the matter. Why not just, God, why not just decimate the people with a plague or some natural geophysical disaster? Uh, Which I think is a good question, and I don't have the answer to it.
2: I mean, Sihon and his people—they did stand against God's plan because yes. God, God tells God tells the Israelites to do essentially what He told the the Edom uh, told them about the Edomites: go through, don't cause trouble, pay for what you eat, and
1: and his heart got out. obstinate. Yeah,
2: and, yeah. And Sihon goes, "Uh, uh, Now, we're we're not doing it that way." And so, uh,
1: yeah, true. And and I'm going to talk more about that before we move on past it. Uh what I do think we see at a high level is God working through his people as instruments of God's intentions and, and he's speaking to them through Moses. He's speaking to them about what to do. Brian, great point. Uh, I think we have to ask why utter destruction? Uh, but, and I think you're right. It's because they opposed God's purpose uh, and were promulgating a false religion. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's pretty well established, factually anyway. <laughs> Presumably, uh, their, their promulgation of a false religion uh, and their opposition to God's purpose are the crux of the reason for the decimation, the complete destruction, which, which God approved. Ostensibly he approved. Uh, now, notice here in the Sihon account, slightly different from the Og account, which is comparable and comes at 1st of chapter 3, uh, the Lord told them to conquer and possess Sihon's people, and that manifested itself into complete destruction at the hands of the Israelites. But he he didn't he didn't describe to them to do exactly just that. But in Og he did. He said in Og, which is in chapter three, he said, "Go and do what you did to Sihon," uh, which is essentially uh, decimate them, conquer, possess them, men, women, children, all the above. Logan, and
0: he, yeah. I think a lot of this language is hyperbolic. And the reason is because back when I taught Joshua and Judges a year ago, Mm -hmm. you
1: have to come to grips with the fact that you read in Joshua that these people are wiped out, man, woman, and child. Then you go to Judges and they're all over the place. They obviously, and and sometimes the Israelites can't offer them. So you have this Joshua, which is a very, again, I think over-the-top kind of... A lot of hyperbole when they talk about these battles. They say, you know, we wiped them out, man, woman, child, and unlike here, sometimes the livestock as well. Yeah, and right, they kept the livestock. And then you get the judges, and these people, they said, well, we, we, we couldn't drive them out. And so I, I think a lot of this language is hyperbole when it says they wiped them out, man, woman. Girl. Yeah, it's interesting point, too. The, uh, the commentary, I've already attributed any good idea that you hear to, to this commentary but the commentary of Patrick Miller, who's a Uh, theologian at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, in so many words, he tried to suggest that uh, the uh, intensity of the description evolved over the years, our our understanding of the intensity of the description evolved over the years uh, into something perhaps more intense than it really was. He didn't come out and say it that way, but that's essentially uh, what I took from it. what I don't think we can do, uh, although there are probably people in this world who would want to do this, I, I don't think we generalize to treating our enemies that way today. I think we would pretty much in this room agree uh, that that even that would, even that description, contravenes the notion. If there be such a thing as a just war, and there are controversies around that, this wouldn't this wouldn't qualify.
0: Predators won five to nothing the other night. Wouldn't we have said we decimated them? Yeah, they yeah, right. wiped them out. And then two nights later, guess what? They were still around. So out. we do use that kind of language.
1: Uh, yeah, in our in our lexicon. It, yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. It's fortunately this, it's all, they're all still alive. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think this are kind. Are of green. Green. Yeah. But battle. That's a good point. Uh, battlefield language has been. Uh, adopted in a variety of contexts that don't involve loss of life Uh, in our culture. But
0: it would sound like it if we heard it before the second night.
1: Yeah, right. Except
0: in verse 34 it says we left no survivors.
1: Yeah, and that goes to uh, what George was (laughs) describing earlier as a bit of a paradox. There's
3: also a little bit, and I don't know if this makes it any easier or more palatable, but uh, there's also a little bit of a connotation. Anytime you can see where it says there's one thing that there's one Hebrew word that just is destruction and there's another one that talks about utterly destruction so anytime we get a translation that says utterly destroyed um, that's that's usually using a, a word that has a connotation of, of, of consecration almost which seems weird to us but it's, it's almost like a, a way of purifying a people or giving the people that you're defeating giving them over to God so there's almost uh, kind of a holiness about it, you know, from their perspective. Yeah. And in, in where they could say we are doing the bidding of, of God. So it it would be very much akin to a holy war, you know, in t- in today's vernacular, in today's culture. But there is a there is a connotation. It's not just a matter of who is alive and who is dead, but there is a purpose to it that ha- is wrapped up in God's purposes. Yeah.
1: Paul. Um,
0: whether you fall into the camp of the people who wrote this said that they practiced this utter destruction of man, woman, and child or you fall into the camp of they didn't actually do that they just said they did that which there is some evidence for especially like later on in Joshua and Judges when they take the city of Ai, Ai means ruins and archaeology shows that it was ruins for a long time before they showed up. Now archaeology does go back and forth um, sometimes you find something different to everything but, there's reasonable doubt on that side. Either way, though, you can you can agree on the reason they said what they said here, and it's pretty consistent that in that culture, this practice wasn't like just going and destroying everybody and taking it. It was to say we didn't benefit at all from this victory because it wasn't our victory; it was God's victory. Yeah. So you're saying we didn't take these people. Um, and that's going to show up later in a lot of writings that that was that was something we wanted to warn that's Don't be prideful about victory because God. Gave it. Plunder.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Other point.
0: You know, World War II. They claimed that the women and children were killed a lot of our Marines we tried to invade the home island, and uh, that's probably true. And then, of course, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, they're taught from you know in family this like Certain
1: people that they might the so Well, you know, it, it's, interesting, it's an interesting point, or probably the last point before we move on. Uh, that, that ideology is not, the ideology has not been decimated <laughs> from this present world. Uh, I don't want to get too far into that, but that there is still a, an element of it uh, you said the even today.
0: Problem, of course,
1: tough uh tough thing to wrestle with. Uh let's look at uh look on at the chapter 3 now and then we can I will talk a little more about a couple other motifs that I uh I think we can take away from the, the two chapters. Uh chapter 3 verse uh, let's read if we will uh Starting in verse 3 of chapter 3. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of uh, Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time, we took all his cities. There was not one of his 60 cities that we did not take from them. The whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom, in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from their cities we carried off for ourselves. Okay, uh, in verse 12, let's uh, read, let's, let's not read 12. What, what we've got in twelve, verse 12 and following uh, is essentially a discussion of the division of the land that was conquered. Okay, so uh, there's probably some things in there worth a discussion, but I don't think we've got time to get too deeply into that because of a few other things I want to talk about before we leave. Then you look in 21 and following. I'd be totally remiss if I didn't at least uh, point out the whole notion that we see here that Moses gets a glimpse of the promised land but doesn't actually partake in it, uh, which is a really important point to remember uh, in, in the just the, the biography of the man himself. Uh, the, the dominant view being that Moses had borne the burden of God's anger uh, God's anger with the people not that this was an atonement I think it's clear this is not an atonement Uh, but he still bore the burden of the failed generation that is coming to a conclusion here of not reaching the destination uh, that that he had been so faithful in pursuing Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, we got about 7 minutes left and I really probably need to cut right at quarter till because I'm a solo parent today yes so quick
0: comment years wandering around the desert because they didn't
1: believe they could defeat
0: the people of the land. Right. And so I think I think part of it is that at this point God's like, okay, now it's your turn to see that actually
1: you can do that. Yeah, a faith right. test. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They needed to see that in fact, yeah, those guys were never in trouble, but we can come And certainly I think uh, yeah, and I think that ha- that's there. Uh yeah. I definitely think there's an element to that. Otherwise it could have happened yeah. that way. Yeah. That's a great point. Uh, a couple of things I think are interesting in terms of uh, just motifs. I got about four I want to talk about here. We've talked some about fear, so I don't want to get too bogged down in it. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 2, where, uh, the right, read with me, the Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him. Uh, talk about Og. For I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. Uh, it is alleged that do not fear is one of the most frequent commands in the Bible. Uh, the message for us being that, that God's prior performance uh, is designed to, to provide confidence for the future. Uh, I think that's, that's a crucial thing for us today that we can generalize to various aspects of 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 our own uh, life in the kingdom. Uh, I, faith is a persistent struggle, even for the faithful. I think we can. I think we can safely. I, I can relate to that. Uh, and I think our culture doesn't do us any favors, uh, because we're fed a steady stream of of uh, messages about self-reliance. Uh, we glorify this whole up by the bootstraps ideology. Uh, He's a self-made man or woman. Uh, Here's how you can do this thing right. Personal finance or get fit or whatever. Uh, Here's how you can free yourself from one thing or another. Here again the whole notion that these things I'm describing are about you and me rather than being about some bigger plan from God. And I don't mean to suggest that there's no wisdom in those things. We can't glean wisdom from them. Uh, but I do think that we we don't do ourselves a favor. We don't practice consistency uh, with our thinking if we're caught up in, in I, me, and we, or you and yours, rather than something bigger. Uh, and so fear creeps into our culture, I think, uh, in some surprising ways. Uh Another motif that I've picked up on this whole notion of a gift, uh, this paradox of of land being a gift from God but something you must take. I think we see that uh, repeatedly. He he's in God has enabled it, uh, but there's this mysterious middle here where where the people of God are expected to do. It's not just not just coming to them. That there's there's an element of uh, of of go and do in faith rather than just receiving things one way. I think that's a challenge for us as well. Uh, the notion of rest is another. And, and if something I say fascinates you, then make a note of it and let's talk in the last few minutes. The whole notion of rest in uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, the division of the land is happening and and... Once it's all settled and everybody's part is settled, then there will be rest. Uh, that word is, that Hebrew word is nuach, which really means to settle down. Here again, the intent was to settle on the land, settle into a way, not, not go to sleep, but settle into a way of life. of uh, Settle into a way of life that does not involve uh, fear or deprivation uh, with God providing the security. Uh, we know there's exile in future generations. The, the, the future didn't all look rosy, we know from history, but that's the intent there. Uh, and notably, I think we see that, that nobody's going to rest until everybody rests. Uh, it's a very communal theme, I think, in, in that part of chapter 3. Uh, another thing we see is this the whole motif about land. Uh, Deuteronomy is consistent that the gift of land is not available without obedience. Not perfection, but, but obedience. And so you see this years-long struggle to attain what God's promised. Uh, there's a theology of land that I think we can talk about here. Uh, we often focus on the nomadic elements of the land. We're nomads and, and we, you know, our, our future generations are, are promised this unforeseen land, or this unseen land, in these unforeseen ways, in these unseen territories. Uh, but I think, there's also an important element here about this whole notion uh, uh, less emphasis on the nomadic elements of the land uh, than on God sending us to a place uh, as a gift, okay, which contravenes a little bit what I said earlier but this whole notion that there's this gift of land uh, that we share in community Uh, and in in our culture in our legal culture we have deeds and, and so forth that Prescribe who owns pieces of land, but this whole notion that that land uh, is is shared as a community of people. uh, I think that's an important. I think that's an important element. Reactions, thoughts, any of those motifs I I laid out there for you. Rest, land. That uh, idea of
3: land. uh, There is another. uh, and back to the hebrew there's a hebrew word adamah which refers to land that you can deed and there's property it's more like property all of these words that we read as land the the word is eris which is earth so it's you shall have this earth and you shall have that earth and so it's very much a notion of how god's creation is providing and how it's a it's a place of respite uh, a place that you're charged to care for but um, how it is very much a gift That you're receiving part of
1: God's creation. And we're collectively stewards of it. So in other words, I live on a very, very small piece of property in Nashville. Uh, I care a lot. That's not the only piece of property I care about. (laughs) I I care about the whole community. I care about the people in the whole community. Uh, Not to come across self-righteous because I'm, I'm probably not the best citizen in town. But that's what I'm striving. That's what I'm aspiring to to be concerned about, all of it, not just that little eighth acre that that I happen to have a registered deed to. Randall,
0: this is not one of the motifs, but don't you have any comment on the big iron bed of oak?
1: <laughs> Thirteen feet, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and so the the question is, was it just was it big because it was kingly, or was it big because they were large people? I think it's because they were large people yeah 13 feet other thoughts or reactions parting shots Brian anything for next week okay what is it three and is it four and five just four just four yeah. okay Deuteronomy 4 not much to ask read
2: That's it
3: yeah I'm with you I'm with you okay
1: Deuteronomy 4 next week thank you
3: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.